Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last week, we talked about Jesus squaring off with Satan in the wilderness. Satan had questioned the identity of Jesus. He questioned who he is. He questioned who he is before the Father. Satan had used similar crafty methods in the Garden of Eden against Adam and Eve. Yet, what may have worked on Adam, what may have worked on Eve, what may have even worked on the nation of Israel, it did not work on Jesus. He valued the voice of his Father over anything, over anyone else. And after that victory, Jesus was kicking off his ministry. We're going to pick up in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Quote, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. End quote. So Jesus is traveling around, and everyone is exciting about what he is teaching and what he is doing. But I don't think we should jump to a conclusion that says the people of Galilee were ready to be in a real, honest place of worship, more of a place of admiration. Jesus was the new big thing in town, but as he travels around, he decides to go to Nazareth. Now, you're going to remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. This was his hometown. That will turn out to be a visit that's maybe a little bit different from his ministry and travels thus far. So now, verse 16, quote, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. End quote. When he arrived in his hometown Nazareth, he decides to go to the synagogue. Luke records, as was his custom, which means that was routine for him. You might remember earlier in our journey through Luke that when Jesus was only 12 years old, he stayed behind in Jerusalem to spend some more quality time in the temple. Synagogues were a little bit different, but the heart behind them were pretty similar. Synagogues show up in the New Testament, but you're not going to find one in the Old Testament. We all know that in the Old Testament, Israel sinned against God, and we know that with sin comes consequences. The harshest of consequences came at the end of 2 Kings. Israel had ignored and they had rebelled against God for too long. Now, the Babylonians are taken over. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple of God destroyed. So many people are killed or taken off into slavery. This is the worst possible scenario for God's people. So not only were people taken from their homes, but their homes were destroyed. Many were burned down. This was total destruction. The warnings of the prophet Jeremiah and other prophets, they came true in a very nightmarish fashion. This was the ultimate, oh no, what have we done moment. So decades later, when they started returning from captivity, they wanted to be more focused on the word of God. They wanted to be sure that they never found themselves in another situation where their homes were destroyed. They never wanted to find themselves in a situation where they're going to be carried off to some foreign kingdom or foreign nation as slaves again, and you can't blame them. Sometimes we don't learn our lesson until we face the harshest of consequences. Sometimes we ignore all the smaller warnings until the big one comes. Unfortunately, that's their story. A side note for those listening to this, if you have something pulling inside you, some warning of sin in your life, 
Now is the moment to repent from it. One phrase I've told my students so many times, I'm sure they're sick of hearing it, is that you can always choose your sin, but you can never choose your consequences. You can always choose your sin, but you can never choose your consequences. That being the case, it is in our best interest to repent of whatever that warning is glaring up over, to repent before it's too late. Look, any warnings we have received is purely from the grace of God. He is not obligated to give us any warnings, and He is not obligated to give us any further warnings. So if you're at a spot in your life where you're holding on to something that you know you shouldn't be holding on to, if you're continuing to rebel against God in some way, look, here is an opportunity. Drop it. Repent from it. Seek forgiveness. He is faithful to forgive you of your sins, but you got to, got to, got to repent before it's too late. When the exile was over, they were able to return home and rebuild. Shortly after that, they started setting up synagogues in their towns and in their cities, and these were meant to to be places of worship where Jews could hear the Word of God read and hear it explained. That way their communities would be really built upon what the Lord had said so that they could center their lives around the law of God, the Word of God. The more the Word was a part of their life, the more likely they were to obey it. By Jesus' day, a synagogue was to a Jew what a church building is to a Christian. Jesus was a regular attender. The Son of God wanted to be in the synagogue. He didn't assume himself to be too important or too busy to show up where God's word was read and where God's word was taught. It was a priority for him. This guy's traveling all over the place doing all kinds of good, yet he always made time for the synagogue. So my question for you here, is it your custom to come and hear the word of God, or is it just a matter of convenience? For a lot of people, church is great unless there's a better option coming along. So I ask you, what is your priority? No one will have perfect attendance. Life is messy. Life is crazy. I'm just saying there's a difference in making church a priority and missing sometimes from missing because you're always looking for better options. But on the other hand, I do want to be careful with this because too many people think they're Christians because they show up to church. Listen, y'all, hell will be full of people who thought their good attendance record would save them. It won't. The church is for your good, but only Christ can save you. Showing up will not, cannot, does not save you. But listen, I have found that in my walk with Jesus, the more I grow, the more I want the Word of God in my life. And what I know to be true is that Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or whenever your church gathers, that the church gathering together around the proclamation of God's Word is a strong, strong way to know the Lord better. With that, we need to move on to verse 17. Quote, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. I feel like there can be some pressure finding a passage of Scripture when everyone's looking at you. I mean, you might be a pro at finding Bible passages, and then suddenly everyone's watching, and every single Bible page can stick together, and you will not be able to find First Peter to save your life. But can you imagine unrolling a scroll that doesn't have chapters, doesn't have verses to break stuff up, and finding a specific 
passage. 10 out of 10, I would have dropped that scroll. It would have been so embarrassing. But Jesus didn't have the awkward trouble some of us experience in life, and he turns right to a section in Isaiah that we know as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. It may feel random, right? But this was a very relevant passage to the point Jesus wanted to make. Listen to verses 18 and 19 one more time. Quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. This is about the Messiah and what the Messiah would do. It is an announcement that salvation is here. Now, the identity of the Messiah was a very popular conversation piece in this day. Everyone had theories about who he might be, what he might do, where he might come from. For example, there was a group called the Herodians, and some of them believed that the Messiah would actually come from the line of Herod. And if you remember anything about Herod, you would probably think that theory is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But then there's another group called the Zealots, and they thought their violent actions would bring in the Messiah and he would lead them in violence to power. I mean, there were lots of groups, lots of ideas about who he was, where he would come from, and what the Messiah might do. Usually, the ideas, as far as I can tell, were more about what people wanted the Messiah to be than who Scripture revealed the Messiah to be. But that's probably something we can relate to today, right? Don't you think we sometimes project our own personalities and desires and wants and priorities onto God? Though the Messiah was more than a prophet, these verses are telling us that he's certainly not less than a prophet, right? His proclaiming of good news should ring bells of remembrance of Luke chapter 1. You remember the angels declaring that they bring good news, evangelion, of great joy. In his ministry, Jesus was so concerned with the poor, with the ailing, he made so many people's lives better physically and materially. He brought radical healing to so many people. But the main focus of Jesus was always on bringing liberty to those captivated by sin. The liberty to the captive and liberty to the oppressed was liberty from sin and death, a far greater foe than we could ever hope to handle apart from Christ. Now, everyone in this synagogue, everyone in this room, they knew exactly what this passage was about. Everyone knew it was about the Messiah. We really see that starting in verse 20, quote, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. End quote. They're stunned. Why is he reading about the Messiah? Why is he reading about hope and salvation that God is sending? What would he have to say about this Messiah? Does he have a theory that he wants to share with the rest of the class? They can't take their eyes off Jesus. As he is seated in a stunned and quiet room with every eye on him, and who knows how long this awkward silence might have lingered before verse 21 comes, quote, And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. End quote. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. Hope has arrived. You know those words that I just read from Isaiah? They're about me. God has been fulfilling those words in that prophecy in your hearing today because in your presence, in your sight, is the Messiah that God had promised all along. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? 
End quote. The crowd really doesn't know what to think here. They spoke well of him. They're impressed. The words of Jesus are being called gracious. Maybe a prophet can be received in his own town after all, right? But you'll notice that at a certain point, questions come up. Maybe opinions are changed. Maybe the mood in the room shifts a little bit. It's kind of like, wait a minute, is this not the son of Joseph, the carpenter? I mean, can anyone truly special be the son of a carpenter? How could this guy, the son of Joseph, truly amount to anyone? Why would Isaiah be writing about the son of a carpenter? It makes no sense to them. But in their defense, this is a big moment with a deep revelation, one that they're not expecting. They are kind of all over the place. That's true. But this is a lot to process, and we'll see it's about to be even more to process. Verse 23 and 24, quote, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, end quote. Immediately after Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he went to Galilee, and in Galilee is this town called Capernaum. While Jesus was there, he taught in synagogues, and he was glorified by all, it says. If we match up the timeline with the books of Matthew and Mark, we see that Jesus also healed the sick. He cast out demons. He was busy. He did so many miracles and made so many lives better. So Jesus is looking at this crowd in Nazareth. He knows what they want him to do. They want miracles. They want to see something really special. After all, if he is who he is claiming to be, shouldn't he give his hometown a little special treatment? At least that's what would be going through their minds. Isn't it a temptation for us all to want the things God can do instead of wanting more of God himself? Wanting what God can give you is not the same thing as wanting a relationship with God. Wanting blessing without wanting the blesser more is still rejecting God. It is still choosing created stuff over the creator. We call that idolatry. Jesus sees this idolatry in their hearts. Remember, the Lord sees not as man does. He doesn't look to the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. I think it's noteworthy here that Jesus is not trying to offer reassurance or any effort in convincing them, but rather it appears he is drawing out what is in their hearts. He is not provoking them. He is unveiling what is there. See, there's no use in covering up sinful attitudes and motivations. They always have a way of coming to the surface at some point. And the sooner really they can be drawn out, the sooner they can be revealed and brought to the surface, really the sooner they can be dealt with, the sooner that they can find healing. I mean, look, with a cancer diagnosis, it is no good to ignore the disease. What you hear over and over and over with a plethora of different types of cancerous diseases is that the sooner they find it, the better the outcome. Now, with matters of the heart, matters of the soul, it is so necessary to have these things drawn out, to have this spiritual sickness revealed, drawn out, dealt with. And again, the sooner, the better. This Nazareth crowd, they don't get it. So Jesus is going to give them a little bit of Old Testament history here. He wants them to understand that God is not there to give them special treatment, that God actually doesn't show favoritism. He actually responds powerfully, compassionately to those who have faith. Look, we're going to see this, verses 25 and 26, quote, But in truth, I tell you, 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three and a half years, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, end quote. When Israel rejected Elijah, they really were rejecting God. So when the famine hit, Elijah was sent to a widow in the land of Sidon, someone who was not of Israel. So when God's people rejected God's prophet, rejected God himself, he sent his prophet outside of Israel because God did not and does not show favoritism. He responds to faith. Verse 27, quote, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, end quote. So Israel, again, rejects the prophet that God has sent, which means they're actually rejecting God himself. So for all the lepers in Israel who could have approached in faith, they didn't. Elisha heals a Syrian who, again, was outside of Israel. God did not show favoritism. He responds to faith. When faith was not present in Israel, opportunity then went to those outside of Israel, in Sidon, in Syria, in these two examples. The message Jesus is giving Nazareth is clear and obvious for them. The Lord does not show favoritism to Israel, to Jews, to the people of Nazareth. He sees humanity on equal footing. I've heard it described that the ground at the foot of the cross is always flat. God does always respond powerfully to faith wherever he may find it. God does not respond based on how successful you've been, how charismatic you are, any gifts you may or may not have, any sense of popularity or fame or fortune that you may possess. He doesn't respond to any of that. He responds to faith. So if you're sitting there feeling totally and wholly unqualified for anything, know that God responds to faith. He doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. This visit to Nazareth was not so that the people of Nazareth could gain something or receive some special treatment. This was to give them the opportunity, like all the other towns, to respond in faith to Jesus. When he opens that scroll, when he read Isaiah 61 and said, This has been fulfilled in your hearing, that was their opportunity. They have the good news proclaimed to them, and their opportunity was to respond then in faith. They did not. So Jesus starts speaking about their hearts and the spiritual sickness therein. And one thing I know about people is that they usually do not love being called out, especially for lack of faith or idolatry. When the light shines on sinful hearts revealing their darkness, these hearts darkened by sin respond, often in a very angry way. We've got three more verses. Verse 28, quote, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away, end quote. This is a pretty scary scene. We have an angry mob drive Jesus out of the town. Their goal was to throw him off a cliff. I kind of feel like this is a pretty dramatic overreaction on the part of the people of Nazareth. But again, when the ugliness of sin in our hearts is finally revealed, things can get ugly. When sins are called out, and hearts are pierced with conviction. One of two things can happen. One, we can suddenly see our sin plain as day and understand our need for grace, our need for a Savior, or our hearts can 
harden and what can come out is a lot more like anger. How dare you call this out in me? How dare you point the finger at me? How dare you look at me or think about me or speak about me in that way? And that is the reaction we see here in Nazareth. Things got ugly. People got mad. It is truly a miracle that Jesus just passes through the crowd. We don't often list stuff like this as a miracle, but passing through an angry mob who's trying to throw you off a cliff, I feel like that's a miracle. Honestly, I would love to see how he did it. Jesus held up a mirror to their motivations and intentions. He revealed they didn't want God for God, that they wanted God for some kind of special treatment. They wanted God for what God could give them. They wanted the blessings, but didn't really care about the blesser. They wanted the created stuff, but not so concerned about the creator. So as I'm closing this episode here, I just want to ask you something pretty simple. Why do you want God? Do you want God for him? To have relationship with him? Do you want God to enjoy God? Or do you want God because you want him to be this like cosmic spiritual vending machine where if you pray the right way, or in this case, press the right buttons, that your blessing of choice will come out? Do you want God for himself or do you want God for what he might give you? I think that for many people, if they're going to be very honest with that, they're going to come down and say, hey, I actually have been wanting God for what God can do for me or for what God can give me. And that's, that's awesome that you're able to be that honest with yourself. As I close, I want to help redirect our minds here. Maybe next time you pray, where instead of starting your prayers with petition or, or asking God for stuff, start your prayers with adoration, with praise, with gratitude. Honor God for who He is. Praise God for what He has done. Give thanks for what He has done for you, not asking for stuff. Now, there's a place for that, but maybe if we start ordering our prayers with praise and then gratitude, and then after that at some point we'll get to what we need, maybe just maybe that will shift our priorities and shift how we see our relationship with God. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.